So hope is for me everything. I wake up hopeful. I wake up optimistic. I think it really makes a difference for me who has chronic illnesses. It really does make a difference in whether or not I feel like life is worth it. Like the days when I'm really tired and my body is, is exhausted and I can barely get out of bed, it's still worth it to get up because the world is still moving. Like the world is changing, better is coming, whether or not I live to see it. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. And I guess we'll just jump in to our chat. So Yvette, for listeners who aren't familiar with your work, will you tell us a bit about who you are, what you do, and why we come to have this conversation today? Yeah, I am a multi-hyphenate, is how I describe myself. <laughs> I'm yes, a trained it. I'm a trained journalist, so my day job is being the executive editor at this magazine called Yes, where I focus on solutions journalism. So thinking about the biggest issues of our day, whether it's racial injustice or indigenous rights, and thinking really forward about what are the solutions to those issues instead of just presenting the problems themselves. And I would say that is something that carries across my life and my career. So outside of that, I'm an author. A lot of my work focuses on gender and race and size and thinking through the lens of pop culture about how we can address those issues and solve them and really think about dismantling those sorts of institutions. So that's a part of my work. And then outside of that, I speak about a lot of those issues and I do it to children. I do it with adults and, and really trying to get everyone on the board on board with the idea that we can imagine a new world. It doesn't have to look the way that it looks now. The first thing that you said that really sparked curiosity to me is, did you call it solutions journalism? Is that how you said it? I did, yeah. What does that look like? Is that finding experts in the field? Is that doing your own research? Like, I'm just fascinated by how that manifests in your life. It's really being connected to and doing community building with people who are on the ground addressing these issues. So whether it's thought leaders or activists or organizers, people who are really ingrained in movements. So I think a lot about one of my favorite people in the world, Renee Bracey Sherman, who is on the ground related to reproductive justice. So when we wanted to do a story about the ways in which activists in Latin America have become a lighthouse for activists in the United States who are focused on reproductive justice. I reached out to Renee, like we need someone in Argentina. And she said, I know the perfect person. So it's mm -hmm. really having and building relationships with people who are not just focused on the problem, but focused on how do we create a better world around this issue? How do we use community to do that? And how can the work that I do amplify that message. So it's not just about yeah. 
the the bleakness of it but the hope of it the optimism of it like what comes after well and I think when you're getting into an awareness of a new I hate to say the word problem but that's what they are problems that are facing us in this world in our country how do you even understand which grassroots organizations are the ones that are truly affecting change because i think you know when we become aware of something that's going on in the world like i think of you know when roe v wade was overturned and all of a sudden it was like i I hate to sound like an idiot i i couldn't even believe that that could happen and you know as it Mm -hmm. was like getting closer and closer it was like holy shit like we're no way no way and then it happened and it was like oh what do we even do? And so just starting to arm myself with information about which organizations in my local community, in the nation that I could support with my platform, with my money, with my whatever, how have you found that it's best to identify the ones that are truly doing, um, that have the efficacy that we should be supporting? Because I, I also think that sometimes it becomes so popular that everyone's doing it. You kind of don't know who you're supposed to look at for guidance. I always say to look toward a person who you trust and ask them about an organization. So no matter what organization it is, if there's someone in your community or even a distant friend who's involved in some sort of movement, ask them, ask them. And I also think social media has been a really great way to figure that out because people will openly criticize organizations that are not on the ground doing the work that they claim to do. So sometimes it's as simple as searching for organizations names, say on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram and seeing what the criticism is of that organization. And then you can always make a choice of whether or not to support it, but at least you have all of the knowledge about the organization before you decide to throw your support around it or platform it or give money to it. And how did you how did you find your way into this specific type of coverage and journalism? Like what was it in your past that kind of led you to this place? Oh, that's an awesome question. I am a trained journalist, like a a straight up trained journalist. And the way in which we are trained is that we are never the story and that we're supposed to have this objective lens of an issue without any bias or any perspective. And I came to realize that was untrue in graduate school when I really started understanding that regardless of whether or not people are open about their biases, everyone has them. And a lot of it is subconscious. So everyone has a worldview, everyone has a perspective. And that really came to the forefront for me when I started supplementing my journalism education with humanities education. So in history courses and in black feminist theory courses and sociology courses and communication studies, it really helped me develop knowledge outside of just the skill of journalism. And I wanted to figure out how to merge those two things. It was really important to me that I wasn't just in a newsroom, for instance, just believing something that a public relations officer is saying, but being able to read between the lines of it and figure out what's not being said. And it was very difficult in the beginning to figure out a pathway that allowed me to do those two things because they're really, journalism treats them as antithetical. Like you can't be an activist and a journalist. You can't 
publicly declare um, that you vote for a Democrat and also be a journalist because it presents bias. And solutions journalism for me was a way of doing those two things, of saying that I am a journalist, I am an activist, I believe based on my worldview that this is the way the world should look, and I wanna amplify those messages through this skill. And solutions journalism was a perfect way to do that because nobody questions whether or not I can do my job effectively because I have this worldview and perspective. In fact, it actually makes readers sometimes trust me more because they know that I'm going in with this knowledge and this this broader understanding of how the world works. Wow, I honestly like you're saying it. And of course, I understand this idea that on paper, journalists are not supposed to be biased. But I feel like, of course they are. And this is like, we just know this. We know this about human beings for the longest time. And I think even before we had the words unconscious bias or we're using that kind of language, you could see on like, I'm just even thinking of the nightly news that my dad would watch when I was younger. Like you knew if you were, if you were tuning into like Tom Brokaw versus, you know, someone else, like you knew if they had a more conservative leaning ideology, you knew based on the network they were on. Is that just sort of um, like, I don't know, like this like hope or this fairy tale that we hope journalists are going to be totally unbiased or do you feel like that's something that's been pulled apart for a long time because I think and maybe it's just a newer way of thinking but I absolutely care about what my journalists are reporting and the lens that they're seeing it through it's definitely a fairy tale I love the way that you frame yeah. that it's absolutely, <laughs> it's absolutely a fairy tale it has never been true because what ends up, say, on your nightly local news is determined by people. Like people are sitting in, a, in an office and saying this story matters and this story doesn't matter. And what we know about humans and our bias is that we tend to gravitate toward people who look like us, people we can relate to, people we have something in common with. And so if you are a specific ideology and this is what you're accustomed to, those are the stories you're gonna to gravitate toward, like nothing happens accidentally. I think what has helped us as viewers develop that critical media lens to know that nothing that you read or see just happens accidentally is the fragmentation of media, honestly. So when my parents were children, you had five channels and you watched ABC or NBC or uh, CBS and that everyone watched that, like hundred or tens of millions of people watched the nightly news. Now, because you have so many options, it allows people to think more critically about whether or not it's supposed to be this way. Right. So I think a yeah. lot about I think a lot of that consciousness uh, came about because of the movement to end police violence and the ways in which um, people who died because of police violence were framed in newspapers. I'll never forget a newspaper saying that Michael Brown was no angel and like framing wow. this person who lost their life that way. And I think that helped people raise a lot of consciousness around, well, why would they report that? Like it, it just right. became like a, a question of like, why? challenging right. why you were reported that way. And that has raised consciousness among all of us. Yeah. 
I was just watching um, something last week. I had the flu really bad last week. So I was in bed oh, and just God. watched like a mil. Oh, no, I'm okay. But just I ended up consuming so much uh, mm-hmm. network and streaming and different things. And one of the things I was watching, just as an example of bias, because I think it's worth talking about, not that you don't know what it is, obviously, but my audience, just in case um, this is not clicking for them, I want to. L- at least give a bit of perspective. The thing that I was watching was talking about the way that if you look at the opioid crisis, which is predominantly white Americans who are having a drowning and being killed and all of these things inside these opiates and how that is framed. It's framed through a lens of times are hard, people are depressed, they're turning to drugs, they're getting access. What that is framed versus if you look at the way the drug crisis was framed in black communities in the 80s, in the 90s, and what that, the language that was used, the absolute lack of concern is literally the same, you know, these families are really struggling and they're having a really hard time and they're doing these things. And this is an opioid crisis. And if you look at the framing for a black community, the language is harsher, the lens is more dismissive. There is such a lack of concern about how that feels for those families inside of this thing because one community is white and one community is black. And I know I'm not telling you anything that you don't know, but one of the things um, that I feel like I am trying to learn or maybe unlearn is this idea that that's something that's happening to other people and this Mm -hmm. is actually a white person problem that we need to talk about and that we need to address so that one is specifically for my white listeners this is uh deeply unjust and deeply unfair and something that if i'm going to be honest i think most people don't see because they don't have to look at the lens of someone being murdered by police and then being framed as not an angel. Forgive me if that I went off on a tangent, but I no, feel I like the that. idea of unconscious bias is not something um, that we hold enough onus for. And it's something, you know, in the new work that you've done, obviously this is not your first book, but I was reading the book this morning and it's why getting to hear perspective is so important because the bias that you encounter as a woman, the bias that you encounter, this this new book is about your body and what that looks like and how you navigate that. I, I like the fucking courage, Yvette, if, you, if I'm allowed to cuss at you, the fucking courage <laughs> to do this work that you're doing and talk about these things, like just the opening chapter, the introduction alone, I'm just like, uh, I don't have words for how the work that you're doing. I just want to honor and acknowledge you for that because Jesus. Um, Sorry, I went off on a very (laughs) deep tangent about unconscious bias, but I just, I I really do want to say that because I'm going to just pre-forgive me if I'm saying this wrong, but I feel like oftentimes uh, white women are asking black women to explain what this feels like for them or how this it and it's deeply fucking unfair because this is our work that we're supposed to be doing so that was my intention and i hope that it came across um okay and if it didn't i'm gonna just keep doing the work and try my best okay luxury is meant to be livable 
Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Earn on things like gas, groceries, and even that midday latte. And to top it off, there are no fees, period. Yep, that means you won't be charged fees on your checking account. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank. Member FDIC. In doing this, in recognizing these things that are here and have like leaning into this deep work and often, you know, like trying to shine a light on social injustice, trying to talk about um, the inequalities that we're facing in this country or, you know, like you said, looking to Latin America and the work that they're doing and trying to just sort of make us all aware of these solutions that exist. Do you feel like, is this work hopeful to you? Is it, are you feeling encouraged by what you're seeing? Are there times when you're like, shit, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. Like, how does it feel to be in this space? I feel so hopeful every day. I live oh, on hope. One of my, my favorite phrases by an activist, Miriam Kaba, is hope is a discipline. It's sometimes the Ooh. only thing that we have, truly. Like, sometimes the only thing that we have. I think so often about how enslaved people must have felt after the Supreme Court Plessy versus Ferguson case, which basically said that you're allowed to be enslaved in this country. That took, I mean, hundreds of years for the United States to apologize for that ruling and say that was the incorrect ruling. I can't imagine how hopeless they felt. And yet I can look around and see how much different the world is. Like I can't imagine how hopeless black people on that bridge in Selma felt of we just want Mm -hmm. the right to vote. Like we literally just want to be treated as a citizen like everyone else. And we're met with such violence for for no other reason other than the fact that we're treated as second-class citizens and regarded as such. I can't imagine how hopeless they felt. And yet I can walk across the street to my local library and drop off my ballot. And I'm I'm not Mm. encountering, of course, there is still voter suppression, um, but I'm not encountering it in my current moment. And so hope for me is everything. It's the way in which we can continue to move forward. And what I always say is sometimes, and that's something I learned from writing my first book, which is sometimes we are fighting for something we may never live to see. It may take a hundred years for the United States to recognize abortion again and say that a woman has control over her reproductive future. That could take a hundred years. 
we may not live to see it, it's still worth it. It's still worth investing in and organizing around to ensure that, you know, five generations from now that they have access that we may not in this moment have. It's still worth it, even if we don't live to see it. So hope is mm-hmm. for me everything. I wake up hopeful. I wake up optimistic. I think it really makes a difference for me who has chronic illnesses. It really does make a difference in whether or not I feel like life is worth it. Like the days when I'm really tired and my body is is exhausted and I can barely get out of bed, it's still worth it to get up because the world is still moving. Like the world is changing. Better is coming whether or not I live to see it. I feel like when you say you're hopeful, you're you're holding that way closer than a lot of people because I feel like you have faced so many health challenges. Can you talk to us a little bit about where you're at with your health today? Yeah, I am so grateful to have a care team that it's it's very rare to have a care team that specializes in your conditions. So both my cardiologist and my pulmonologist went to school and specialize in the conditions that I have and they've turned it all around. Um, So Mm -hmm. in the beginning I was, I mean, it it could have gone either way, but thankfully my body has responded really well to the medications. Like the left side of my heart functions normally on its own with no medication, like just does its own thing and is is holding steady. I just had like a recent ultrasound and it looks really good and it's holding steady. The right side of my heart is a little finicky sometimes, but is also holding pretty steady. And the fact that my body is so resilient in that way, like I'm in awe of it. I'm in awe of it every day. Like I used to not have a really good relationship with my body and felt like we were like two like separate entities like I'm in a body but I'm not really now like I have so much reverence and awe and respect for my body and how resilient it is and there are so many things happening beneath the surface that I can't even see but that I know are working for my good it's just an incredible place to be to have like a really good care team and really good medication regimen and like I wake up every day feeling really good which is great because I didn't for a very long time Yeah, I loved when you wrote about that in the book that you uh, you honored your body and you were more aware of this idea that it's showing up for you and taking care of you. And I think you said something like, you know, on the hard days, you're like, my body's failed me. And then you're like, no, it hasn't because I'm still here and I'm still going and I'm still strong. And I think I don't know if men have this relationship with their bodies in the way that women do, but I think for me and for so many women I know, we spend most of our lives at war with our body for one reason or another, you know, whether that's hormones, whether that's not feeling like it looks right, acts like, you know, it can't get pregnant, it, you know, it's suffering with this illness, it's doing these things. And to get to a place where, I mean, how old were you when you were diagnosed? Was it heart failure? Is that, I was diagnosed is that with how, heart failure. is it? Mm-hmm. And how old were you? Failure. I was 29. Wow. I've never even heard of that before. That, I mean, and like to, to be able to still say like, but this body, man, we're like, this is what's holding me together. This heart, you know, what did that feel like? I know this is obviously what the book is about, um, but what did that feel like to try to learn to not be at war, but to work with what 
with the body that you've been given and, and what it's going through? It was really hard at first. I spent a long time, like right in the beginning, of course, being really afraid. It's, it's yeah. heart failure. When you hear heart failure, the assumption is it's terminal and that it's a death sentence. And one of the very first things they tell you is like, don't Google, do not Google, like do not go on Google and search for your condition and look at all of the things that can happen. Like none of that serves you and none of it will help. And I'm glad that I listened to that because in hindsight, like a couple, maybe a year ago, when I was about three years in, I went and looked and was like, oh my goodness, this is horrifying. If I would have listened to this, I would have been dead by now. So it was a really difficult journey. Like it was a really hard journey. But then I I remember when I started to turn the corner, like I remember um, I had a dog at the time. I have a new little puppy now, but I had a dog at the time who actually had the same conditions I have, which is so funny. Um, And she, I walked her, (laughs) I walked her and I didn't lose my breath. And I was like, hold on, like this is, this is interesting. And then one day, like I walked up the stairs and I just kept walking. Like I didn't have to stop to catch my breath. And I was like, oh wait, like this, it's working. Like it's really working and it's starting to turn around. And it was at that point that I realized, like I literally can't be at war with my body. Like it's not, if I'm at war with my body, then I can't pay attention to all of the side effects from the medication to know if it's working or not, or whether or not I'm getting better. Like, like now, I feel every ache, I feel every pain, I feel everything, everything that happens. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I feel like I look at every bruise, like, huh, that's interesting. Things that I never would have paid attention to before, like this journey forces me to, like I have to pay that deep attention and you cannot do that sort of work without developing appreciation for your body. Yeah, and like a, a, a deep care of your body, which I feel like is something that a lot of us struggle with and and something I've really had to learn how to to know how to do. I can care for my children, but it's taken me almost 40 years to get to the place where I can I care about myself like, "Oh, you're feeling tired, you're feeling run down." I love that you said like if you um if you don't appreciate your body, then you can't you don't notice those the aches or the pains or which I think is is sort of this thing that women do right we just keep going Mm -hmm. we get it done we got work we got responsibilities we have people counting on us so we just keep going and we learn to keep going with the pain we learn to keep going whether that's emotional or physical so this idea that to appreciate your body means that you have to notice that's a really good lesson i feel like for listeners to to sit with for a second what what are you noticing or not noticing about your own body right now and how how did that manifest for you like was that a slow process was that journaling was that therapy like how did you learn that skill it originally started in therapy and it started in therapy before i was diagnosed I just knew I was really, really tired. And I didn't know that there was an underlying condition. I just thought I was overworking. And I knew that if I continued to work the way I I had been working, I was working like 16 hours, writing two books. I was exhausted. And I knew if I continued to work like that, something inside of me said like, "You're you're not gonna make it. Like you're not going to cross the finish line for any of these things if you continue to work this way. So I initially went to therapy to figure out how to stop overworking. Like that, that's what I went to therapy for, of, of how do I create a life that decenters work and thinks about 
all of the other things in my life that are meaningful and that give me purpose? How do I do that? And through that process, I learned a lot about why I'm a perfectionist and, and so many different things. But I also learned that in order for any of this to work, I had to listen to my body because I could sit in front of my computer for 16 hours and not move, like have, you know, pick up food, sit it at the desk, like never get up and leave, drink a little bit, but mostly like heads down, shoulders hunched, like typing my little life away. And once I, so my therapist really challenged me to think about, to listen to what my body needed in the moment. Like what, what does your body need? And so now like I know when I'm thirsty, I know when I'm hungry, I know when I need to stand up and stretch because I'm feeling tension in my shoulders. I know when I need to go for a walk. Like I, like it's almost like we're really in a relationship. And then that really aided me, honestly. Like once my, once I got my diagnosis, I was like, oh, I'm glad that I had already been doing that work because if I had not been doing that work, it would have been much more difficult to step into, like your whole world gets blown up overnight. So in order to step yeah. into that and feel confident in doing it, I'm so glad I had already been doing that work and had already really slowed myself down. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. And I think if you're a parent like me, you understand how important it is to have a kitchen available to you when you have four kids, which is why Airbnb is always the place that I head to just make the vacation easier. And I have always used Airbnb as a place to say, whether it was for work or family or a girl's weekend, but more and more, my friends are using Airbnb in a totally different way as a business, as a way to invest in property and earn money for it. While you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some extra money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. Quaker has been a trusted name in oatmeal for over 145 years, which means they've been milling oats since before the invention of the zipper, the stop sign, or ballpoint pens. Quaker has something for everyone, whether it's old-fashioned or quick oats that are good for cooking or baking. And while a ton of things have changed, the good stuff remains the same. Quaker, getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. 
Can you speak to listeners who are dealing with whether that's um, some kind of illness, whether that's the kind of illness that people can see or the kind of illness that nobody understands is going on, which I think is potentially even harder because you're suffering, but nobody can easily tell, who are feeling discouraged or, you know, you said like hope is, it's a practice, it's a dedication, it's something that you really have to work on. How did you maintain your hopeful belief system even in the midst of, you know, you're, you're struggling to walk down the block or your whole life is flipped upside down. I was thinking about, you had this one line where you were talking about, it, it might seem like a small thing, but you were like, one of the things that had to change was my order at Chipotle. And <laughs> which I was like, girl, I get that because it seems, it was like a joke and it's like a funny moment in the book. But at the same time, if, I mean, for me, Food was my friend, my coping mechanism, my family member, my celebratory, my turn to when I'm sad. It was everything. That was how I was raised. Mm -hmm. And when you are learning a new way of existing in a relationship with food, it's I I the I have cried over not being able to like it sounds so yeah. silly, but it really <laughs> is. These are your so um, how did you, all these things are changing. Like how did you maintain sense of self and how did you maintain hope? Oh, that's such an excellent question. I will pretend in the beginning that I was hopeful. In the beginning, I felt really hopeless. I really did. I was putting on these airs of feeling like everything is going to be fine. But deep down, I really didn't know because nobody knew. My brother now has heart failure. My brother is 37. And he, wow. yeah, he also has heart failure. The, the statistic is like one in two black people under the age of 50 will develop a heart condition. Like the statistics are out of this world. Wow. And wow. I, and he and I have had completely different journeys with it. Like he's already like advanced stage and may need a heart transplant at some point, like completely different. And that could have been my story. Nobody knows in the beginning. It's like, we're going to give you this cocktail of medications. We're hopeful it could work but we really don't know. And so nobody knew. Everyone was walking around really on eggshells about, we, we really don't know what's going to happen. It could go either way. And I felt that really deeply. And so I held on to hope, one, by faking until I made it, like really like actively speaking positively to myself, speaking about my condition positively with other people, being very, um, like not allowing anyone to be sad in my presence like you can cry but don't cry around me like you can be upset but be upset like I can't have that in my energy space and then I did a lot of journaling because up until that point other than going to therapy I'd started therapy maybe eight months before my diagnosis prior to that I had no real relationship with my body I often said I felt like I was like floating over my life like watching it happen but it never felt like it was happening to me so journaling was really essential for me to get into my body. Like, this is how I feel today. These are the things that happened today. This, these are the things I'm grateful for today. Like started a, a literal gratitude journal of here are the three things I'm grateful for today. That allowed me to not just give in to the way that I felt in that moment. Because it's, really, it's a so hard good. journey. You're tired. 
I was still really swollen. I had pulled so much liquid in my, it was in my abdomen and in my ankles. I was exhausted. I was aching all the time. And then you start these cocktail of medications that make you really sick. I had migraines all the time. I was nauseous. My stomach, I could barely eat. I was very, very sick for a long time, but I couldn't give in to that. Like I had yeah. to believe there was something on the other side. Otherwise, like you're just miserable. I'm already miserable. Like my body is miserable every day. The least I can do is if I can't control my body, control my mind. Yeah, it, you know, it reminds me of this old quote and I'm for sure forgetting who said it, but the idea that you have to stand guard at the door of your mind. Mm -hmm in situations like yeah. that, when you're in a season like that, that you really have to be your advocate in every way, but most especially with your thought process, which I can't even imagine what that feels like because you have this loving family, you write about them in the book, I'm sure you have friends and people who deeply care about you and they're in it with you and they sort of wanna process with you but really, if they process with you, then that starts to affect your ability to maintain mindset in that. How did you even know, like, did you read that or was that just sort of an instinctual thing where you were like, no, no, I have to be able to like maintain this for myself. It was very instinctual. And I think what- That's cool. One of, one of the things that, one of the beauties of the internet is being able to watch other people. And to watch them sometimes without ever interacting with them. And I have been following this in a completely different situation, but I have been following this black family. They had a six-year-old girl who had cancer. She ultimately died, but she was six years old and she had um, a kidney cancer and it kept like they would treat it. She would go on remission. It kept recurring. And I followed this family for like three years, three or four years from the time this little girl was like three years old. And like watching her, of I know this little girl has to be miserable, but watching her and her smiling and her laughing and playing around with her mom and like really embracing life. Like I watched that for many years, long before I got diagnosed. So when it when it's your turn, then you remember like, oh, like I I watched this this young woman hold on to her faith and onto her family. I have I have a choice to make. I have a choice to make. I think it also helped in that, like I watched someone close to me who had also had heart failure and eventually died, but he was an older man. He needed a heart transplant. There was a lot of, of, of compounding factors, but watching him die and watching the way he had navigated it and saying, I don't want to do it that way. I don't, I don't want to do it that yeah. way. I don't know which yeah. way this is going to go, but if the only thing I can, can guard is my mind, like I have to commit to that. Full, I have to my full stop commit to that and get other people to commit to it too. That's incredible. How has that, um, What what's the time, because I don't know the time frame here. So how old are you today? I'm 33. Okay. So how has that walking through this journey and learning this way of thinking and this just like iron will when it comes to, you know, this is the way it's going to be. How has that affected other areas in your life have you, as you've seen your health improve and things start to turn back into a different direction? Has that affected like your career or like dating or has that shown up in any other areas of your life? Oh, yeah. 
I used to be such a workaholic. Not that I don't love my job, but I honestly could care less. Like I, I yeah. want to have my life. Like I love, right. I love my work. It's also, it used to be the center of the world. Now it's like a sliver on the radar. Like it's like 10% right. of my life now because I so appreciate the need to have relationship with people. I remember my therapist telling me long before I met my partner, um, telling me if you want a partner in your life, you have to make space for it. The way your life is set up right now, you don't have the space. You have no space to build a solid, committed relationship with someone. Where are they going to fit? Are they going to fit around your 16 hour right. day? Are they going to fit? Like, where, where right. are they going to fit? Where are you going to squeeze them in? And so now my life looks completely different because of my diagnosis, first and foremost. So if I need to nap, I go and take a nap. Like, if my body is like, I'm actually really tired, I'm like, I got to go. I got to go take a nap. My body's tired. I'm also at the doctor all the time. But my life had to shift dramatically to accommodate this diagnosis. And because of that, like my life has shifted dramatically to really accommodate me. Like, what are my desires? Yeah. What are my curiosities? What do I care about? What, what do I want to fill my life with? Like what's important to me? And once I made that one made that switch, but then realized that nobody cared that I did. Like I was so worried people would think I had developed this like core belief that I was successful because I outwork everyone and I'm a perfectionist and and then once I realized like nobody really cared, like the work is still good, the work still gets done. Nobody really cares if I'm here eight hours, six hours or 16 hours, it changed everything. I'm like, oh, nobody isn't cares. It Great. Wild. Yeah. And isn't it really wild is. the things that we hold on to because we think this is like a million years ago, I was an event planner in LA, mm. like in a previous life, I was an event planner and I had this fancy office in downtown LA and I had the staff of six people and this office was so freaking expensive. But I mean, this was like 15, 18 years ago. So it's been mm -hmm. a while and it wasn't as normal to like work from home. And so I thought if I want to have a successful company, I have to have this office because this is like a status symbol of how well we're doing as a business. So you could trust us with your yep. money. And it, I mean, for a year, I just was drowning. Every penny I made was like going into paying overhead. And I finally, it wasn't even a smart choice. It was just like, a, I'm going to crash and burn. I can't keep going at this pace. And so I decided to get rid of my office, go back to working out of my garage. And I was just like, oh my, I was so sick to my stomach. I'm going to lose all this mm -hmm. business. I'm going to lose all this respect. And then it's so dumb. Not a single client even knew because no clients came to my office. Like we had the kind of business where you went to the client and it never occurred to me. I'm like, I could run this out of a Starbucks. This is my ego, which is telling me That's that right. I need to have it be a certain way and nobody cares but me. It's so wild how we do this to ourselves. I'm curious too, do you feel like, did the pandemic play a role in, in the person that you are now as well? Because I think for me, going through the you know two years that was sort of the bulk of that time that was really more than anything else what allowed me to um change my perspective on like how i needed to show up what i needed to look like what my body was supposed to be how hard i need to push like you're just like oh none of this matters at the end of the day this family this health like 
that's really it. Do I have those two things? That's it. Oh, yeah. The pandemic allowed me to show everybody, like, see, I told you. Because I've, <laughs> I've been on yeah. that journey for a while of having really good boundaries at work. Like, I don't, when I'm off, I'm really off. And I looked around and was like, I told you it could work. Like, it could work. People could work remotely. People could um, prioritize their family and, and, and decenter work in their life. And everything, like nothing crumbles. Everything is fine. Yeah. And I remember yeah. thinking like, I told people this could work. But also for me, what shifted was realizing the necessity of mindfulness, really. I was so restless. Because even though mm. I had really decentered work and like started to prioritize different things in my life, those different things in my life still had me running a hundred miles an hour, whether it was like, Oh, my friend has an event here. or oh, I have to go to this launch thing. Just constantly running and running and running. So when the pandemic happened and things really shut down and it was really dangerous for me in particular to be out in public period at that point in time, I was really restless. And I used to have a mindfulness practice. I used to meditate all the time, particularly in my mid-20s when I was trying to figure myself out. I used to, to meditate every day and I fell out of the practice and I had to go back to it because I was so restless. Every minute I'm like, what am I going to do next? What am I going to do next? And when the answer was nothing, my brain would just run. It would just run and run and run of all the things I could be doing if COVID wasn't happening. And I wonder what this person is doing and what's going on here. And so I had to go back to that mindfulness practice to quiet my mind down and like be present and be okay with not having a million things on my to-do list, even if those things are things I enjoy, but like paring yeah. it down to like, I work and I go to sleep and I watch TV and I read and I do these things, but it is not me chasing after something constantly that definitely shifted for me during the pandemic yeah same it, and I think like it I you know there's so many awful horrible things about and still are about the pandemic and its effects but I am a different human than I was before it happened and I can't imagine if I had just stayed at my pace, like if I had just kept going at the, if I hadn't been forced to slow down, if I hadn't been forced to do some really deep work and a whole shit ton of therapy and all of these things, God, I'm so grateful for the brutally hard years for a lot of reasons, but freaking A, I'm so grateful for that time. Like this, this um, lesson in being still I would have never learned that. Mm -hmm. I know I would have never learned that. And if I hadn't learned to be still, then I wouldn't have learned all this stuff that was under the surface when I slowed down long enough to look at it. I'm curious um, for you in this new work and this new book, um, why did you want to take on this topic? I feel like after the first book, mm -hmm. like you really could have gone in so many different directions. Like why this story? Originally, I sold this book in a completely different iteration five years ago. And the deal fell through and and I removed it from the market and like held on to it. And I was never going to sell it again. It was like, okay, that wasn't the best experience. I'm just going to hold on to it. 
But then when I was diagnosed and I was journaling through it, like journaling through the experience, trying to really grasp what was happening to me and be present in my body, as I was working on it and, and journaling through the experience, I realized like I could help people. And if I can help people, then there's a story here. If, if this could, could help people think differently about work that I really care about, like I really care about body politics. I really care about how we treat fat people in our society and disabled people in our society and trans people in our society, who, people whose bodies are considered deviant. I really care about how we treat those people in our society because I think it can usher in really a new wave of body liberation. And if I care about that, and my body is ground zero for this experience, like there's something here. And then I started thinking a lot about the experiences I had had over the years in, in the medical industry because of the size of my body and the ways in which my illness made all of that make sense. I say all the time, when you're a fat person navigating the world, so much of what you experience, people tell you that you're not. Like that didn't happen. Like there's no way that happened. Really, somebody was videotaping you at the gym. Like there's no way. Like you you become really paranoid because nobody believes the experience that you tell them that you're having. When I became sick, yeah, and ev- it's gaslighting. When I became sick and everyone believed me at that point, and nobody brought up my weight again, I was like, oh. Like what I was experiencing was real. Like it validated everything that I had been experiencing. And that's when I knew like, okay, this could really help people. I have to put this in written permanent form and use humor and optimism and hope and pop culture and the things that really bring us together as a society. Like use that as the driving force of this book, but with the undercurrent of this book is designed to help people, to help people with bodies that are considered deviant navigate these systems in a way that allows them to maintain their dignity. And what, can you explain what you mean? Because I've never heard the term body politics before. Can you unpack that? Yeah. So when I say body politics, the way in which our society is set up, I'll use race as an example. We know at this point like our society is built on this idea of whiteness as default and that anything outside of that has to be police, surveilled, um, treated as different and as other, right? Like we're, we're watching that in real time actually with Jewish folks and like the anti-Semitism mm-hmm. in our society and, and that Jewish people are treated as other regardless of what their ethnicity is. If you are in the Jewish faith, Mm -hmm. then you're treated as other. It happens with race as well. When I say body politics, it happens with any body that's considered not to be normative. So normative our society is being thin, it's being cisgender, it's being straight, it's being able-bodied. Anything outside of that is treated as if it is different or as if it is other. And our society sets it up that way. So my ground zero always is the airport. Like the airport is a minefield for anybody that's not considered normative, right? Like my partner is transgender. He's a transgender guy. 
he hates going to the airport because he can't get through the the sensor. Like I finally made him sign up for TSA pre-check so he never has to deal with the with the big body scanner again. Right. right. If you're a disabled person trying to get from the front of the airport to the gate, that how does that even happen? When I have heart failure, like walking to get from the front to the gate, when I was like really early in heart failure, I felt like I was going to die to get from there to the gate. If you're a fat person, try. it's like a minefield of all of the ways in right. which we prioritize normative bodies. So when I say body right. politics, that's what I mean. And I think it's worth saying what's popping into my head is that every single person is paying the same price for a ticket, paying the same tax dollars, paying the same, like all of these things you're required to meet at an equal level, but you are not treated with equality once those dollars are put into use. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's the worst and place on earth. <laughs> It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas, Register today at thisisils.org. How do we break down these systems? Is it awareness? It's conversation? It's um, like, what does that look like beyond hold? Just like, hopefully people are listening to this and having a perspective shift. But even thinking of you talking about your history with the medical field, which I'm sure is at this point, given everything that you've gone through so extensive. But uh, I think of one of my uh, very dear friends had, she's in remission now, but she had like uterine cancer. Mm -hmm. And she told her doctors for 18 months that something was wrong. She kept telling, something is wrong, something is wrong. And they would look at her, they do nothing's, you're fine, every, you're good, there's nothing going on here. And she had, when they finally, she finally just like freaked out until went to many different people and got an ultrasound and they found it was, the tumor was the size of a softball. And she had been oh seeing goodness. doctors for 18 months and she had six of the seven signs of her type of cancer and the only one that she didn't have the seventh one was pain during sex but she's a lesbian so she had never had anything inside of her so that didn't apply to her in any way and it still took 18 months for a treatment and by the time by the time she got to that place her chances of survival were 30 percent i mean it was abysmal oh and thank god she's cancer free today but she said to me, she's in her 60s, and she said to me, she was like, Rachel, it was this hard for me to get this information, and I'm an older white woman. Like, what does it look like if you are different in any fucking way? Like, it was this hard as a woman to be taken seriously by male doctors who told me that nothing was wrong with me when I knew something was. What does it look like if you are in any way not fitting into this mold? I'm just imagining that like by the time you even get a diagnosis, do you feel like you've been given the support or the consideration or the attention that you needed? No, of course not. 
No, by the time when I, first of all, I'm so glad your friend is okay. And that is appalling. And unfortunately, it's such a common experience. When I first started feeling ill was in 2016 and I went to a doctor. I was all the symptoms. Every symptom I had is a symptom of a heart problem. So that's fluid pooling in your ankles, back pain. For some people, it's gastrointestinal issues. So a lot of Mm -hmm. nausea, can't keep food down. That's all signs of something wrong with the heart. And I went, like, I have all of these symptoms. And the doctor was like, oh, you're just fat. You're just fat. If you lose weight, you'll feel better. Had she even remotely stopped to think about what could be causing these aches and pains, what is causing fluid to pool, I would have been diagnosed three years earlier. Thankfully, I'm thankful that I lasted those three years. There are a lot of people who would have dropped dead by the time they caught my heart was working at 16%. They're like anything could have happened in in those one six sixteen. Holy shit! Sixteen. I mean, that's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that I'm still like here and my heart rebounded. It's a miracle. And my doctor says all the time, like, like you're a walking miracle. That usually does not happen. And that that is the experience. That is the experience for primarily women in this society. Compound that with being black. Compound that with being fat compound that with being queer, compound all of it, and you're not getting the treatment that you deserve. And it's not because doctors are these monstrous, uncaring people. It's because that's the way they're trained. They're Mm -hmm. trained that way. I think a lot about Serena Williams. Like, so it's Serena Williams. Right. And they did not believe her when she said that she had had a history of blood clots and she knew she had blood clots in her lungs and she thought she was going to die. It's Serena Williams. If they don't listen to Serena Williams... We really don't stand a chance. Right. Holy. Oh, my God. What do you hope listeners take out of uh, this conversation or readers take out of the new book? Like, what's the thing that you're like, if you only get one thing here, this is the piece. If readers could only get one thing, a new world is possible if we all work for it together. Honestly, like that, that is what I want people to take from it. A lot of what I'm asked is like, what does it look like to have this equitable world? And the final chapter in the book deals with that of like, what would it look like to have a free future for fat people? And what I say is like, it takes all of us. It can't just be fat people saying that every state should pass laws that prohibit fat people from being discriminated against in the workplace. It can't just be fat people saying that. It requires all of us to lobby and to organize and say, wait a minute, why is it just Michigan? Like Michigan is the only state in which that has happened. That should happen nationwide. That requires all of us. It can't just be fat people saying, I, my child should not be weighed for their BMI at school. Like it can't, that just can't be fat people saying that about their children. It has to be all of us. It takes all of us to make change. And that is what I hope that people take from this. And to be optimistic and hopeful that it's possible. If we really yeah. all come together and lobby and organize, like this is doable. It doesn't have to be the way that it is right now. Can I ask too, um, I'm curious, you use the term fat very confidently. Like you, I've never spoken with someone. Is that like a you taking ownership of it? Is that, it, it, does that word not affect you? Like, 
can you i'm i know i sound like very ignorant right now but can you explain yeah I'm so glad that you asked that. Um, the way in which we're taught about fat in our society is that it's a pejorative, like you use it to denigrate someone. It's just a descriptor, like my body is fat. <laughs> like I just think of it as a descriptor of, I've yeah. unlearned over time, like being in body positive spaces and thinking about my act, like my body is literally fat. It's just a descriptor with no, there's no morality attached to it for me. Like my body is fat and I address people how they choose to be addressed. So if someone is like, I don't want to be addressed as fat. I prefer plus size. Like I respect people and the descriptor that they choose to use for their bodies. That is just what works for me. Yeah. Cool. Thank you for telling me because I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm really curious about that. And I, I, I feel like I always worry that I'm going to, and I want to say this because I think listeners probably feel the same way, that when we're learning about anyone's perspective, there is always this fear that you're going to step on someone's toes or offend yeah. someone. And so I, I'm hopeful that if we can ask questions in a really earnest and humble way, that we just have better information about how we show up and what we say. Yes. And um, I, I really appreciate that perspective. Uh, Absolutely. So Yvette, we have learned a ton from you. We've gotten incredible wisdom and perspective in this conversation for listeners who want to grab the book they want to follow you on social will you tell us all the places that we can get your work learn more interact with you give us all the juicy details absolutely so across every social platform i'm free black girl that is my name on instagram twitter any of the new things that are sprouting up i'm free black girl across every platform my website is evetdion.com and I encourage people to get this book, to get waitlist from their local indie bookstore. If you want to go Amazon, that's perfectly fine. If you want to do a big <laughs> chain, that's perfectly fine. But I encourage people to get it from their local indie bookstore. I personally recommend bookshop.org, which allows them to purchase the book and a percentage of it will go to their local independent bookstore. Cool. Very cool. Thank you so much for taking the time, for talking to us and letting me ask ignorant questions with, you know, total uh, <laughs> humility about this process. But I really, I, I think the part that I found most interesting in our conversation today is this idea of journalism that's solution oriented, because I think it's what we need, what's what we need so desperately right now in the world and in media is Yes, there are so many problems and we need leaders who stand up and say, and here are some ways that we can help to push this forward. So thank you for teaching us about that and wishing you all the luck. The, the book comes out next week. Is that right? Yes. Or is Tuesday, it December yeah, okay. 6th. Oh my gosh. How are you feeling? Yes. Nervous. Are you feeling nervous? Really nervous. Yes, I know yes. that, man. I know that feeling. You're just like, oh, please. Please let this be okay. I think too, I was yes. wondering this about you today. Whenever, like a, as a writer, we put really hard stories or really vulnerable stories in printed word, I feel like those books, when they come out, it's almost like you're excited, but you're also like, oh God, please, mm -hmm. you know, because it's mm -hmm. just, you're like, here's my heart. Here it is. Please yeah. don't smash it. So I just want to honor that you've done that here because it is a very vulnerable book. And I know that by being that vulnerable, you're going to help a lot of people. So thank you for helping us and for doing the work. 
I surely hope so. Thank you so much. It's been such a joy and a pleasure. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org.